What is happening, ladies and gents? My name is Felix Fiasi. You're listening to Party Roulette, the show where we talk about politics. Uh, mostly US politics, sometimes UK politics, sometimes world politics. You never really know. That's the thing about politics. It's different every week. It's always shit going down. Um, but yeah, recently in US politics, we've had a very interesting month. Uh, of course, Trump has begun his impeachment hearings, which uh, were initially greeted by a lot of enthusiasm amongst most left-wing media outlets, because obviously we all hate Trump and we want to get rid of Trump, however that may be. But this is the, the issue, is that the line of attack which the Democrats have chosen to try and get Trump out with is very, very weak. And the entire process, once you look into the details of how a president actually gets impeached, you realize that it's basically impossible for that to happen because you have to have a simple majority in the House of Representatives, which is 51%, which is possible. You'd have to have pretty much all the Democrats voting to impeach him um, and then a couple Republicans, um, which is certainly possible. But then once you get into the Senate, for him to get impeached, you need a two-thirds majority. So you'd have to have every single Democrat, which is already a big ask. There's some very conservative Democrats in the Senate, like Joe Manchin, um, who's literally just a right-wing guy. And then you'd also have to get 30% of Republican senators to vote to impeach him, which is just never, ever going to happen. He has a 90% approval rating within the Republican Party. So this idea that he could get impeached, even for something which is impeachable, which is like a concrete line of attack, it would still be nearly impossible. But the line of attack that they've chosen now is focusing on this alleged phone call that he had last year with the president of the Ukraine, whereby he called him and asked him to investigate allegations of corruption against Joe Biden and his son, Hunter Biden. Because the story goes that when Joe Biden was vice president, he got his son, Hunter Biden, into this very high-end energy executive position in the Ukraine, despite having no experience working in energy. Um, and then in exchange for that, Joe Biden gave Ukraine trade deals, um, aid, arms, all these other benefits, which he was able to provide. So it's just a classic thing of nepotism and corruption. And the thing is that this, this story is likely true because this did happen and Joe Biden's son did have absolutely no experience working in energy. So why on earth would he have got this position? Let's not be naive. It probably is corruption. So Trump was basically saying to the president, can you investigate this? I want you to get dirt on a political opponent of mine. Um, and if you don't do this, then I might cancel aid to you. So he was trying to leverage this, this investigation. But the thing is that everybody heard this and they were like, oh, look at Trump. He's such a bad guy. He's trying to, he's talking to a, to a foreign country and trying to dig up dirt on political opponents. But really the fact of the matter is that Joe Biden's corrupt. That should be what we're focusing on here, not how this information came to light. It's the same as what happened in 2016 with Russiagate and everybody constantly talking about how Trump was in collusion with the Russians and he got all this dirt on Hillary from the Russians. And that was how we found out that Hillary was corrupt and the DNC was corrupt and they rigged it against Bernie. And Trump shouldn't have done that. And then all of those allegations turn out to be false. Trump did not collude with the Russians. 
And even if he had done that, the focus should be on the fact that Hillary's corrupt. The focus should be on the fact that Hillary rigged it against Bernie and the DNC as well. So this whole narrative of, oh, let's focus on how the information came to light rather than the information itself. It's just a detracting narrative which is used by the establishment to make us not focus on the right things. But anyway, the impeachment uh, proceeding started, I think, five days ago now. And the case is so flimsy. And there was a clip that came out two days ago with the star witness for the impeachment proceedings, which was this guy, Ambassador Taylor, who was the ambassador to the Ukraine uh, for America. And he was getting questioned by the impeachment, uh, what's it called? The impeachment board, the guy sitting up top in the Senate who were asking all the questions. And there was like uh, this guy, this Republican Senator Colden was asking him, okay, so explain how Trump has has been colluding with the Ukrainians. He was like, well, uh, I heard this. I heard from a friend of mine who overheard a phone call uh, in, 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 in the Ukraine where Trump said this and yeah. And the guy was like, so you, a friend of yours told you that he overheard a phone call. So there's already like three degrees of separation there. There's no recordings of this phone call. It's all just he said this, he said that, she said this. Very, very flimsy stuff that would not hold up in court. And then the Republican senator, Colden, was like, but didn't you meet with the Ukrainian president three times after this alleged phone call? And he made no mention of the fact that Trump was leveraging aid to you in exchange for an investigation. Surely that's something which he might have cared to mention. And the ambassador was like, yeah, he didn't say, yeah, he didn't say anything. So all of this, also, it comes down to the legality of whether or not a U.S. president should be allowed to talk to a foreign head of state um, questioning him about information, about people which he might be running against. And I don't know the legality of that. And it's a very, very gray area, especially considering the fact that he's just he's just looking for facts. He's looking for information. If the corruption is true, then we should know about the corruption. This is the same arguments they use against WikiLeaks and Julian Assange and Edward Snowden when they're like, oh, these guys are traitors. These guys are enemies of the state, treasonous men. And it's like, no, they're heroes. They're spreading information. They're holding the elite accountable. And if I'm honest, I think everybody should know that Joe Biden's corrupt. Everybody should know that this was an act of serious nepotism and he's not to be trusted. But I digress. Another reason why this whole impeachment proceedings is, is very annoying is because now every single senator has to come back uh, and be a part of these proceedings for two or three weeks, including Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, who are currently running for president. So it takes three weeks off their time on the campaign trail which they could be using to go out and convince people of left-wing politics and loads of other things. So that's a shame. But speaking of Bernie, it's been a very interesting month for him. Of course, a month ago, he had a heart attack, which was absolutely terrifying. And yeah, everybody, the whole narrative in the media then was really, oh, he's done, look at him, he's, he's so old, he's 78, he can't hack it, put him in a wheelchair, he's done. And that was not the case at all. Two days later, he was out of hospital. It wasn't, calling it a heart attack is very misleading. It was like, um, 
like the most minor kind of heart attack you can have. It was not cardiac arrest. Um, but yeah, two days later, he was out of hospital, back on the campaign trail. A week after that, he held this huge rally in New York, the Bernie's Back rally. And in between the rally and him coming out of hospital, he got a series of serious endorsements from big left-wing politicians like uh, AOC, Ilhan Omar, uh, Rashida Tlaib, Ro Khanna. Loads of left-wing new media pundits all came out and were like seriously showing their support for him. And that's a very big deal because there's a lot of other left-wing candidates who are running, like Elizabeth Warren, Tulsi Gabbard, even Andrew Yang. And these politicians, they could have thrown their weight behind any of these candidates, but they all chose Bernie because he's the best and he's got the best track record. He's been fighting for these same policies for 40 years. He's the most trustworthy. He's the one who's going to cause the most radical change. He wants a political revolution, and none of the other candidates really do. So, yeah, it's been a, a great month for Bernie, and I think he's really starting to gather up the momentum that he needs to uh, to win this thing. And there's been a lot of polls coming out. I think like a month ago when I did my last episode, Elizabeth Warren was kind of overtaking him in the polls and getting to where Joe Biden is. And obviously we shouldn't pay too much attention to the polls because look at 2016, everybody was saying that Hillary will beat Trump. And we know what happened there. But yeah, there was, um, so now Bernie's kind of, you know, gathering some more support. He's doing a lot better in polls. He's kind of on par with Elizabeth. It's very much like a three-way tie at the moment between Elizabeth Warren, Bernie, and Biden, depending on which states you're looking at. But there was one poll which I want to talk about, which came out, I think, like two weeks ago. And it was very interesting. It was a Reuters-Ipsos poll. Um, and normally in these polls, they just ask people, who are you likely to vote for? Or if the election was now, who would you vote for? Some wording like that. But this poll was asking people, um, given the candidate that you're thinking of voting for, are you extremely excited to vote for him? So it's basically trying to measure enthusiasm, which is a very important metric because if somebody says, oh yeah, I'm really excited to vote for this person, that means they're going to go out to all of their friends, colleagues, family, and talk about this candidate and try and convince other people. And that's really what wins elections is a very enthusiastic base. That's why Trump won is because his base was so gassed for him, was so excited to have this man in office. And everybody who was voting for Hillary was kind of just like, eh, I guess, you know, she's not a total lunatic like Trump. Why not? And that's one of the main reasons why he won. But yeah, if you look at uh, these numbers, so... Bernie Sanders tops the list with 52% of his voters saying they're extremely excited to vote for him. After that, you have Elizabeth Warren with 31%, then you have Joe Biden with 23%, and then you have Pete Buttigieg with 19%. I'm going to talk about Mayor Pete in a sec. Um, but yeah, you can see there that he's got a 21-point lead on Elizabeth Warren, who's the next highest, which is a huge difference. That's That's the kind of numbers which are going to keep on pushing your campaign forward and keep on getting you new people. And then um, there was another question they asked as a part of this poll, which was asking people, are you definitely going to vote for your preferred candidate? And this one was great. So you had Bernie at 61% saying definitely. Then you had Biden next at 48, Elizabeth Warren next at 44, and Pete Buttigieg next at 40. And again, that's a huge difference. That's a 13-point gap on the next highest. So you can really see here that, you know, Bernie, Bernie Sanders' campaign, it might not have any of the big money, 
you know, he might have the entire media against him, but he's got a strong grassroots campaign, which is not going to let up. And it's just going to keep on getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's going to be a great few months for him. But yeah, so I wanted to talk about um, Mayor Pete. Pete Buttigieg. Pete, 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 Pete Buttigieg. So this man, you might have seen him. He looks a bit like um, a Dr. Seuss character. And he is a truly loathsome politician. I don't think I've ever encountered a politician who I despise well, David Cameron, but this is like a different kind of sliminess, standing for nothing, true egomania that I think you could only really find in America. So this guy, he's a he's a mayor of a town in Indiana, South Bend. And he was just like, you know what, I'm going to run for president. I don't stand for anything. I don't care about people. Why should I let that stop me? That's not important. So you can see as well in his policies, which he outlines now, he's kind of He's adopted this very centrist, neoliberal position, which nobody else is really occupying apart from Joe Biden, Kamala Harris. But I think quite early on in the campaign, he realized that, okay, I can't go down the left-wing route because Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, they got that locked up. So I'm going to have to play the centrist game and appeal to that side of the electorate. And you just know it's fake because nine months ago, there's tweets from him saying how he supports... Medicare for all, single payer, saying how it's fundamental, which we, that we have to have, you know, Bernie Sanders bill implemented, which is proper single payer. And now, after he realized that he's not going to get elected if he says that, or there's no chance of him getting elected if he says that, he says the opposite. He says, no, we need Medicare for all who want it, which is a public option, which is something completely different. But yeah, he's he's truly, you can see him on the debates as well. He just stands for absolutely nothing. He's got this smarmy politician veneer, despicable man. And the thing is as well is that he's gay, which is really good for him because he gets a lot of kind of older Democratic voters who maybe used to be homophobic or are proud of how they're not homophobic. And they look at a guy like Mayor Pete who kind of, is reminiscent of Obama in many ways, in that he's presidential, he's very, you know, kind of young, sort of good looking, and he's gay. And it's like, oh, look at this young man. He's so nice, isn't he? He's such a nice young man, just running for president. He's so lovely. You know, next to Bernie, who's there, like disheveled, been on the campaign trail for like five years. He's like, oh, we, need to, we need to have a political revolution. Totally opposite to, to Bernie Sanders. But yeah, I do hope that his campaign crashes and burns because recently it's been gaining quite a lot of momentum as Joe Biden has just been flailing around like the senile, senile old man that he is. Um, yeah, I think in some polls, Pete Buttigieg is actually leading in Iowa, which is the first caucus. But obviously, you know, a lot of, they also say that 60% of Iowa voters are still undecided. So I wouldn't pay too much attention to that. Um but yeah, also in the last month, there's been a, a lot of the candidates have been releasing very detailed plans of their policies. So exactly how they're going to implement it, exactly what they want to do. Um, and the main one of these um, that people care about is Medicare. Because obviously in America right now, you have a situation where hundreds of thousands of people go bankrupt every single year because of medical debt. Over you know millions of people are uninsured. So if they get an illness, if they have an accident, they will incur 
tens of thousands of dollars onto them in debt potentially immediately just by going to a hospital, just by getting in an ambulance that can cost you thousands of dollars if you have no insurance. Um, and 80% of Americans say that Medicare and healthcare is the main issue um, of this election that they care about. And there's really no reason why Americans shouldn't have healthcare as a right. They're the richest country in the world. They have been the richest country in the world for nearly 100 years now. And 28 other countries have figured out how to provide healthcare as a right. If the Czech Republic and Greece can figure it out. Czech Republic was a, was a communist nation 30 years ago, pretty much living in, in abject poverty. And they have healthcare for all now. If America can't figure it out, then there's something seriously wrong with it, which there is. And that's what Bernie Sanders is trying to address right now. But yeah, so they released all of their plans. And what's been interesting is that Bernie Sanders has been saying the same line, the same line for the last 30 years. Medicare for all is the way. Single payer is the way. Everybody on the debate stage has been copying him and using his rhetoric of single payer and how important that is because they know that the country has been pushed to the left by Bernie and 60% of the American population now support it. So they know that they have to say this, otherwise it's political suicide and you're going to end up like Joe Biden. But they've all been saying this, but now when they've released their plans, you can see the devil in the details. So Bernie's plan is Medicare for all, single payer, and it's very important that there is a single payer. And that means that there is one governmental institution and all of the private healthcare companies are made illegal. They are broken up the same way FDR broke up the big banks. You have to do that by force because these people are truly evil. They make profits off people's sickness. It's in their incentive to provide the cheapest care possible and maximize the amount of profit off the backs of these people. That's essentially like a mafia because people don't have a choice when they're going to get ill. They just have to go to hospital. You, don't, you can't choose having diabetes or having cancer. That just happens to you. And the fact that you might have to suffer financially because of that, and there's a bunch of millionaire executives who are actively trying to make sure that you lose as much money as possible is disgusting. You shouldn't have that part of society privatized and it's, it's a fundamental thing. So these private healthcare companies, they have to get broken up. And there's such a strong lobbying power at the moment and so much money running against this movement and Bernie Sanders that it takes a lot of courage to say this, to say that you're effectively going to wipe out quite a large sector of, of an economy and an industry. But Bernie is the only person, he's also, he's also like, he's been, he outlined this in his bill that he put it to the Senate two years ago. It's all there. It's the same bill. It's the same, same damn thing he's been saying for 30 years. And Elizabeth Warren who's not the worst person in the world. She's probably the second best candidate up there. Her healthcare, the whole time she's been saying, I'm with Bernie, I'm with Bernie, single payer, man, Medicare for all, man. She came out last week, she gave the game away because she said beforehand, she said like a month ago, there was a question that came to her and the person in the crowd was suspicious of Medicare for all. And he was like, you know, I'm not too sure about it, you know, da, da, da. And her reply was, oh, man, it's just a framework. It's just a framework. We'll figure it out later. And it's like, nah, 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 nah. It's not a framework. It's a very, very detailed bill. 
in which you break up the private healthcare companies and you have one governmental institution. It's very simple. It's not a framework. There's no room for debate there. This is the whole problem with the Democrats. It's been there since, basically since Reagan. Since Reagan and Bush pushed it so far to the right and their response was to go to the right as well and concede and start with a concession position. So last week, Elizabeth Warren said that her number one priority is getting everybody in America covered. And then, you know, within three years, she'll get Medicare for all and single payer done. And this this is the really tricky bit because you have to understand the context behind that statement and just saying to somebody, oh, we need to get everybody covered. That sounds wonderful because right now you have hundreds of thousands of people which aren't covered. So you think, of course, we need to get everybody covered. But then the flip side of that is you need to get everybody covered. But then what are you going to do about the private insurance companies? Are you going to break them up? No, you're not going to break them up. You've just said the only thing you need to do is get everybody covered. If you allow the private healthcare insurance companies to stay there, you're going to have a duplicative system where the private companies are going to offload all of the sick people onto the government system, which is currently Obamacare, but they're looking to greatly expand that. Um, that's most of their plans, at least. And the government system is going to be so overburdened and underfunded and have all of the sick people that the quality of care is going to go down so much that people are going to start to think, oh, look, the government one doesn't work. This is why we need private ones. Obviously, the government can't do this. So you need to completely get rid of that. Otherwise, there's going to be no fundamental change and the system will still be broken. So yeah, that's that's the whole issue with this. And also a lot of people say, you know, you're taking away people's choice. You're taking away people's choice, man. What if I want to choose my doctor or choose my hospital or I like my current healthcare insurance with my employer? Your response to that should be, firstly, Bernie Sanders' plan is not taking away your choice. You can still choose your doctor. You can still choose your hospital. It is actually taking away your choice in the sense of you will not be able to choose between a private healthcare insurer, which is essentially a mafia trying to make money off your sickness, or a government institution, which is just there to, to get you better, to help you. And the other issue with private healthcare insurance is that most plans don't cover everything. They only cover certain illnesses. So to say to somebody, oh, don't you want to choose your healthcare insurance when all of these different plans only cover certain things and you have to pay extra on top of your plan depending on surgeries that you might have? It's like saying to somebody, oh, you know, do you want to choose your, your fire department coverage, you know? Like, here's one plan. This one covers if your basement goes on fire and if your, if your living room goes on fire. And this one covers your kitchen and your bathroom and your garage. That's essentially what the situation is right now. Wouldn't you want to just have a fire department which comes and fixes everything and puts out the fire everywhere in the house? And the house is your body in this metaphor, by the way. So that's, that's the situation right now. And if, if, the, if the president, if the next president, whoever beats Trump, and he, he will lose doesn't get rid of the private healthcare insurance companies. Nothing's going to change. And Tulsi Gabbard's plan is also still allowing duplicative care. It's not properly breaking up these healthcare providers. 
And Bernie Sanders is really the only person who's who's courageous enough, who who's strong enough to do this and who will fight tooth and nail for this and who's going to make it his number one priority to change this. But yeah, outside of the presidential race, we also have a big announcement, which is uh, Cenk Yuga, who's the founder of the Young Turks, which is the biggest left-wing new media outlet on YouTube. Um, they've been doing proper good journalism on American politics for like the last 13 years. They have like 5 million subscribers on YouTube now. And he's decided to run for for Congress, which is huge because this guy, he's just he's a he's a really good journalist, but he's become so big in the game now that he's basically a celebrity. And to have a voice like his in Congress and arguing for these solid left wing positions, working with AOC, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, also Shank Yuga, along with Karl Kalinsky, shout out my boy. They were the ones who founded Justice Democrats. And Justice Democrats is the organization which allowed all of these new left-wing candidates to come in and take no corporate PAC money, make a pledge on various issues which are fundamental that need to change in America. He was one of the founders of this. So now if he's in there in Congress with all these other people which you know wouldn't be there without him either, it's going to be beautiful. And it's he's going to be running against you know Republicans because it's a purple district. It's a, it's a swing district. So he's going to be running against Republicans. He's going to be running against establishment Democrats. And he's going to be there. And if he beats off all of them, it's such a huge win for this movement and this political revolution. So, yeah, that's very exciting. But, yeah, guys, that's uh, been Party Roulette, U.S. Politics Breakdown. I do hope you've enjoyed listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks probably, maybe talk about U.K. politics. The election's coming up. It's looking very, very dire, actually, for Jeremy Corbyn. There was the debate four nights ago. Was it Tuesday or three nights ago now? And yeah, he got absolutely pummeled. Boris Johnson took him to town, man. It was really like watching a Trump-Hillary debate in 2016 with Johnson just hammering home the same points, the same criticisms, stuff that was landing. Johnson, sorry, Corbyn just on the defensive the entire time. Didn't know what to do. He let Johnson frame the entire debate kept on asking him, okay, you want a second referendum, bro, but which side would you campaign on? And Corbyn dodged this question six times, I'd say, during the one-hour debate, and that's just not good enough. If somebody's saying the same point to you, which is a substantive good criticism of you want a second referendum, but what do you want? You have to sit there and be like, I'll tell you what I want. I'm going to campaign for Remain. I'm going to campaign for Leave. doesn't really matter what you say. Because after that, you say, listen, you massive egomaniac, this is the whole problem. You think this is about you. Your party thinks this is about the Conservative Party. Everything you've done in the last nine years of being in power has been solely to ensure that you guys stay in power. We care about the people. We're here to have another second referendum because the last one is illegitimate. You lied to our entire country. You went round on a bus saying that you would give $350 million a week Back to the NHS, that was a lie. You also lied to the DUP that there would be no border in the Irish Sea. That's a lie. You lie about the trade deal you have every single day. You lie about not hurting the NHS. You lie about austerity. You are a liar. And he is. And there's so many like blatant lies that you can point out that he said over the last like over his entire career. He didn't bring up any of that. He just let Johnson call him out on anti-Semitism. He let him call him out on his 
unclear Brexit policy. All you have to do is sit there and be like, the last vote, the Brexit referendum was three and a half years ago. Your party has not been able to deliver on that. Now it is our turn. Now it is our turn to put this vote back to the people and see what they want because that vote is illegitimate now. It's been three and a half years. How can you even sit there and say this is the will of the people? You have no idea. It was a 4% margin with a 40% turnout. So yeah, it's, it's really a troubling time for UK politics because I really, I really love Jeremy Corbyn. I think he's a great man with a lot of integrity who has excellent policies, who would renationalize re the railways. He would bring about, like Bernie Sanders will, a serious political change in the country. But he's not a good enough politician. He's not. He's, he's letting, he's getting coached. You could see it in the debate. When you see Bernie Sanders speak, you know that everything he's saying comes straight from his heart. He means what he says. Everything that Corbyn's saying now, you can tell he's being coached. You can tell he's overthinking it. He's thinking about what people want to hear, what's going to get him more seats. And that's, that's going to be what kills him. If he had just gone up there the other night and said exactly what he felt, if he'd acted like he does all the time in Prime Minister's questions in the House of Commons, there'd be no issue. He would have run rings around him because Johnson has such a weak position right now. It's, it's incredible that that debate finished and I was like, damn, Johnson won. How did he win that? He's in such a weak position right now. And so is his party, everything. Like, it's incredible that Labour have managed to, haven't managed to rally themselves against this Tory party, which has been in shambles ever since the referendum. And Labour's in just as much shambles. And they let everybody frame the attacks against them. I think, honestly, like, I think he's a great politician. He has great ideas, but I don't think he's a very good leader. And I don't think he's a very good politician. And I think, honestly, he's going to, he's probably going to lose us this election. And Brexit will happen because he hasn't taken a strong enough stance against the Tories and against Brexit. So, yeah, this is my second ending of the episode. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh, yeah, take care. Stay informed. And uh, vote. I'm registered to vote for the election on the 13th of December.